first class of the secular calendar new year. And we usually don't necessarily make any note of it because it, uh, halachically and Jewishly and religiously doesn't really have any significance. It has certain significance in the secular world. So it's probably the most important part of the secular calendar, Tim, is of course April 30th or uh, fiscal year. But this year there's a lot of stock taking in the, in the world at large. Similar to, I guess, Mahavdal Rosh Hashanah. And um, of course the seminal event of the year 2001 the year past, the secular year past, was of course the September 11th World Trade Center uh, event. I'm not going to really speak about that per se, but there's a lesson that Rabchaim Shmulevitz in Tovshin Laman Alf 31 years ago, in the winter of 1970-71, on this parsha they spoke about, which I think is if we could all learn that lesson, it would make for a very happy and content life. I mean, again, it's, it's a lesson that no matter how many times you try to drive at home, nobody really learns the lesson. Nobody really fully absorbs it. So it's worthwhile constantly reiterating this lesson. Certainly, I know that on a personal level, uh, my wife was in the South Tower and um, coming out alive in spite of all ultimately I think the only thing that we really lost Baruch Hashem was, was some books and her um, and one of her um, you know files and that kind of stuff which I think insurance will even cover part of that um, people are without family members lives lost injuries jobs tremendous amount of job loss Baruch Hashem, uh, she was only out of work for several weeks. I was out But then again, Marvid Chassan, Marvid So, person has to learn what to be thankful for. Chavishmul Evans deals with this issue, and, and I think that maybe the lesson, or one of the most important lessons that a person could learn from this past year's event in stock taking is to appreciate what we do have. That's, that's really because all of a sudden things that you take for granted and you don't have them and they become the most important things in life. You know, you go to the bathroom and you come out and you say Nasher Yotzar and that's really the purpose of saying Nasher Yotzar to just be uh, thankful but the fact that things are running the way they are, because they wouldn't be running the way they are, we'd all be running to, you know, we'd all be in big trouble. Right? Just to be thankful. So let's take a look at the shmuz from Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz. We'll be able to start it directly, rather than any introduction to the super. We'll get to whatever super might necessary later. He titles it Aishur HaChayim. The, the treasure that is the happiness of, of being alive. 
Hovon is Chakmaloi. In the parsha we know that that the king of Egypt took his advisors together and they didn't know what to do about the Jews. So they said, let us deal wisely or smartly with the Jews, lest they increase and they become a fifth column in our midst. Hovon is Now, Hovon is means that it was a um, committee, there was a group of advisors meeting with the king where they came up with that decision. Chazal tell us three of the of the major advisors, Gimel Hoyuboisa Eitza. There were three people in that particular council. Bilam, Eov, and Yisro. Three famous biblical personages. Bilam Yoaz. Bilam advised to persecute the Jews and to do what they subsequently did. Eov saw what was happening anyway, that he was going to be overridden, so he remained silent and he remained neutral. Shosak. Yisroi Borach. Yisro was opposed and therefore he had to leave the country and he fled. And the three of them suffered or were rewarded accordingly. Bilam Shi'oatz, Nerag Becherev. We find at the end of Bamidbar, after the um, after the cursing that Bilam attempted, and then his advice about the Jews being um, seduced by the daughters of Moab. So there was a war with Moab, and in that battle, Midian and Moab, and in that battle, Pinchas led, and Bilam was killed. He was killed by the sword. Eov Sheshosak, Eov, who remained silent, remained neutral or passive, Nidoid Bisurim, he was afflicted with all sorts of afflictions and suffering, which became famous the sufferings of Job. But that doesn't mean your work. Sufferings of Eov, Job, Job, right? Sufferings of Job. So it became famous for Yisur, for suffering. Yisur, of course, Sheborach, Zoho, Ubonov, Yosh, Ubulishkas, Hagozes. Yisur, of course, became one of the ancestors of the Jewish people, of, the, of Moshe Rabbeinu's children, of Pinchas' children. His children became the leaders and teachers of the Jewish people and sat in the Sanhedrin in the base of Mikdash. Now, of course, there's one difficulty with this, with this uh, medrash, and that is that Eov seemingly gets a disproportionate punishment. Of course, there's a um, famous word for the Briskorov, what's the measure for measure punishment of Eov? After all, he remained neutral, he remained still, which was a calculated way of trying to uninvolve himself. Why do you get punished by afflictions and suffering? So the Biskorov explains that when a person suffers and feels pain and he gives out a krechts or a yell and he goes, ouch, there's no logic to that. You're just yelling because it hurts you. Something that hurts you provokes the automatic response and the automatic reaction. You don't calculate 
what should your response be to the pain that you feel? You naturally, instinctively respond. It's almost a motor reaction. The way we should feel about other people's suffering is the same as our own suffering. When someone else suffers, and that's the principle known as no ba'ol chavero, to feel someone else's pain, not the Bill Clinton, I feel your, your pain kind of, uh, of baloney, but really feeling someone else's pain. If your pain, you just instinctively react, you should feel the same about someone else's pain. To be cold and calculating and to say, well, politically speaking, what's it going to help for me to oppose? I'm going to be overridden anyway. I'll lose my position. I'll lose my power. Just like Yisro. Obviously, I'm not going to advise persecution of the Jews, but there's absolutely no point in protesting it since my protest will have no effect. <coughs> As a result, he abstained in the vote. What we know what abstaining is, every time the UN votes against Israel, there are always those countries that abstain. And it irks you. It irks you because, yes, there are those that vote against Israel, but those are the usual culprits that we're familiar with. There's usually other than Israel. I never heard of Micronesia before I saw these UN votes. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. But Micronesia is the only country in the world that seems to vote for Israel, besides the United States. So I don't, I don't even know where it is. But that's the only time I ever see Micronesia mentioned. That one of the few countries in the world that votes for Israel. Maybe that's why it does it. It's the only way it gets its name in the newspaper. Do something different. The mouse that roared. So, other than that, you have everybody voting against Israel, and then there's usually some of the Europeans and some of the other countries that abstain. And abstaining is a little bit offensive under those conditions. Why are you abstaining? You're not taking a stand. The point is that Eov abstained. He abstained with calculated logic that it was the politically expedient thing to do in terms of remaining neutral since it wouldn't help anyway. In other words, you calculate it regarding someone else's pain. You don't feel their pain. Let's see how you react when you suffer. Do you say, ouch? Or do you respond instinctively when you feel pain? Or are you able to be so calculating and saying, well, it's not going to help anyway? Good. That's what the Briskorov says. It still a little bit leaves us short of the mark of understanding why he suffered so much. And how does one compare that to Bilam, as we'll see in a second. Obviously, Bilam deserved the worst of the punishments. Because Bilam advised that the Jews should be persecuted. And Shosak. Yet, when one views the actual punishments itself, it sounds like the reverse. Bilam died instantly. He, he was a wealthy person, a popular person. And when the time came for retribution, retribution was swift and, relatively speaking, seemingly painless. It's sort of like nowadays when they, when they finally do administer capital punishment in certain isolated cases, 
They do it by injecting them with the chemicals. And relatively speaking, it's a supposedly painless kind of a, of a death, which in the cases that they usually um, administer it, is in no way any measure similar to the pain that they inflicted on their victims. The murderers that inflict such horrendous cruelty and pain and suffering on their victims, when they themselves are executed, the execution is relatively speaking merciful. So one has the same question. Eov suffered greatly. The sufferings of Job, as we said, became world famous historically. Yet Bilam, who was much worse, suffers an instantaneous and relatively speaking merciful, painless instant death. Why is that? So Bilam is killed by the sword. Eov is nidot b'isurim barim v'noiroim with tremendous bitter and awesome suffering. Which is almost beyond human capacity to, to, to endure. How does one understand that Eov seemingly suffers more than even Bilam? in Eicha Ma'is Odom Chai Gever Al what can a living person complain about? Gever al Khatov, interpreted differently by different portion, we'll just stick to the easiest one, which is the only thing you can really complain about or worry about are your sins. But you can't really complain about life. Perish Rashi, the Gaborn Kedushin, pay of the days. Ma Yisroim Odom, al Kola Karis, What right? Does a person have to complain to God or to complain about the events of his life? Achar chesed, once he's bestowed upon the greatest kindness of all, you're alive. If you're alive, you have nothing to really complain about. It's a, it's a tough statement to swallow, to understand. The great, the great kindness that a, that a man receives by being given life. What what gives him the right to complain about the events of his life? An example could be a person who wins the lottery. And he wins the huge jackpot lottery. And when he finds out about it, he breaks a jug, he breaks a pitcher. Could you complain? Does he even feel that my minuscule, the minuscule suffering and pain of the small loss when he wins so much and he's so overjoyed with the great windfall that he has. This great happiness and fortune that falls to his lot. Will overcome and surpass to swallow up and to nullify 
whatever little tricks of of tiny pain that his daily life may may give him when he when he gains this so such a great such a great fortune. You know, people in general, they say, if only I would have this and this. Yeah, yeah, a person's let's say a bachelor. <clears throat> and one of the greatest uh, burdens that you have then is are you gonna ever find a shit of Are you gonna be able to get married? And the joy that you have when you finally have your Azer connect on and you finally do get married usually gives the person a high for I don't know several months maybe several years but if you would later on appreciate not that anything really changed I mean five ten years down the road when people complain about their spouses or about their married life remember what it was like if you wouldn't be married true some of it is because you didn't realize what you're getting into <laughs> and of course you know reality a reality check does change things somewhat but ultimately if you would be feeling what you felt when you were single and be given the choice of what you have now you would still leap at it because the pain of being a bachelor and an older bachelor and not having a family not having children is so much more difficult to, to cope with than whatever you're coping with now. But you've taken that for granted already. At this point, you no longer have that pain and suffering. And therefore, instead, you complain about the things, the daily drudgeries of life, and whatever complaints people have. But in truth, if you'd be able to go back in time and make that choice, you'd still choose your lot in life that you have today. Of course, the choice is not being given to you to choose someone else's lot in life. First, we don't know what anybody else has and what they suffer anyway. We're only conjecturing. Oh, he's wealthy. He has a great family. He has great children. He has a great wife. He has it all. We don't know. We don't know what anybody suffers. You have to follow a person through all of his own tragedies, all the things that he's gone through. Life comes a package deal take your package or you don't take your package but you're not given the choice of taking someone else's package certainly you're not given the choice of undoing the package and selecting the elements of someone else's package that you'd like and sticking them into your bag that's not the choice the choice is if you go through your life and you look at some of the things that gave you the greatest joy and are now sometimes the um, the the points of where you have where you have difficulty with or that you have complaints about those are the same things that in life gave you the greatest joy children so you'd rather be without children of course I'd like the element of this person's child and that person's child and this one is handsome and good-looking and beautiful and this one is smart and this one is obedient and this one is so able I mean, mix and match that's not the case you don't have that choice you don't have someone else's children, you don't have someone else's life. You have your children. You either have them or you don't have them. And if you could appreciate having them, then whatever tsars they give you, which could be quite a bit, it's worth it. It's better than the alternative. Being married or not being married. It's better what you have than the alternative. 
So in a sense, people tend to forget those things that gave them the great joy originally, how they're supposed to uh, still appreciate it. Ultimately, though, says Rukhaim Shmulevitz, the Pasuk is saying that the greatest gift of all that Hashem, that Hashem bestows on a person is life itself. I guess what could prove that by viewing the fact that that even in modern law, capital punishment is considered to be the ultimate punishment. Irrespective of how you die, the loss of life is considered to be the, 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 the greatest punishment you could give a person. The Rambam writes that the greatest punishment in Olam Haba is coarse, to be cut off and to have no existence. That, of course, is the ultimate capital punishment because that's where you lose eternity. Here, in this world, whenever the person does die, he's only losing, at most, a number of decades, but not more. And certainly, if you're an older person already, so you're losing years, not even decades. Yet, we consider that to be a great tragedy, and we consider it to be a great punishment when a person is, is given that capital punishment. If the neshama, which exists forever, is cut off and given capital punishment. I mean, you're talking about losing an eternity. Forgetting about what the eternity contains in it. But loss of that eternity, says the Rambam, is the greatest and ultimate form of, of punishment, and in this case, capital punishment. And that's the worst punishment. So the gift of life, the gift of existence, is really the greatest gift of all. But it's the one gift that we take the most for granted. Gave you an example before about children, marriage, a wife, a spouse. We tend to take it for granted. The same way that a person, after he buys his new house that he was in love with, takes that for granted after a while. That's human nature. But the one thing that we don't even think about, that we take the most for granted, is the greatest gift of all, which is the gift of existence, of being, of being alive. We'll see later maybe why that's such a great gift. But that's the ultimate uh, gift. That's what the Pasuk says in, in, in Eichon. You're alive. You have life. What is it exactly that you're complaining about that you don't have? You have that. The greatest gift of all. Therefore, he says, a person should feel that this gift overrides and nullifies all of his other complaints. Person should feel constantly the kindness of being given the gift of life. A person should always be with a smile by the mere knowledge and the fact that he's alive. Your joy should be really boundless. And therefore, Again, if you walked out of the World Trade Center, so you lost your pocket, well, you don't even think about it. Pocket, you know, it's like minor. But it's amazing if, you know, the same, I think it was like $600 worth of stuff, um, attache case, books, and the like. You know, if you lose it now somewhere, you left it behind in, in a store, you feel terrible, right? You know, you went shopping and you left it behind. Oh, 
how terrible you feel about it. You left behind a credit card. And you have to cancel all the credit cards and start going, oh, you know, a terrible with all of that. And, and you feel bad about it. I remember when I was in Eretz Yisrael with Shlomi and we were stopped up by the Dead Sea and we came back and my car was broken into, the window was shattered and everything was stolen, including my passport. The headache involved in getting a new passport, and getting new identities, and getting new credit cards, besides the value of the things that we lost as well. You feel terribly depressed. We had to go afterwards to Vera Yericho. Now we couldn't be able to go there. To the police station there, was right near Yericho, right near the Arab territories. It was like an experience, an ordeal. And the next few days, we're ahead of that. We're to park the car. You know, that shouldn't get stolen again. It was a rented car, getting it replaced. I mean, all the headaches that come with someone just smashing through the windshield, taking all your possessions over there. We didn't have a camera anymore. We didn't have what to record things. Didn't have any credit cards, uh, passports, identification. The car itself was really a hassle for the next few days. And it puts a damper and it ruins your vacation. He says, he was like, kind of looking at me, but I, I like contained it and kept it in. So he was able to recover much, much more rapidly as a result of that. I, mean, I still felt that I can't say that it didn't put a very big damper on the rest of the vacation, but we got over it. And we went by that same vacation we were on. Uh, I had a borrowed camera then also, and we were on a train overnight to Prague, and uh, somewhere between Slovakia and Czech. And I reached into the bag and it was stolen again. <laughs> and this was someone else's. I mean, it cost me a lot of money afterwards. And all I was able to feel was joy. Oh, I felt so happy. Why? You know, you know the famous uh, story about the guy that goes to the Rebbe and says, Rebbe, my house is too small, all the kids. He says, hey, bring in the cow, and bring in the goat, bring in the chickens. And a week later, I can't stand. I says, okay, get rid of the cow, get rid of the goats, get rid of the chickens. Oh, so much room in the house. I feel so great about it. So why was I overjoyed? Because I was so happy that the guy that stole it was such a professional. Because he could have just taken the whole bag and taken it. And instead, he unzippered it, pulls out the camcorder, and he goes away with it. And that's it. And he leaves me the rest. And I have my passport there. That's one thing when you're in Jerusalem and you go to the, to the embassy or you go to the consulate and you get yourself a new passport from America. But when you're on the border running between Slovakia and Czech, the Czech Republic, and it's going to be Arab Shabbos where you have to get home within the next couple of days and fly back. And there you lose all your identity. And there you try to explain to the authorities that don't understand uh, any languages. I mean, the people there are primitive. I was so overjoyed and happy with the Ghana that I could have almost kissed him. Thank you for being a professional Ghana. All you cost me was money. That's all you cost me. Now, if I could compare the first thing to other kinds of tragedies that people suffer, I wouldn't feel that pain either. I would have been overjoyed. My wife calls me up. I'm alive. I made it. Oh, I left behind the person. I left behind this and that. Who cares? 
Better yet, I'm out of a job at the time. You're alive. Who cares about the job? You're alive. Baruch Hashem, she was only out of a job for a couple of weeks. And then they were in the middle of relocating to South Street Seaport anyway. So she was very, very fortunate. Tremendous Hashgacha, uh, you know. You have to have gratitude for that. There wasn't even much of a loss of a job. But it, at the time, people had a job, well, so what? There were people that lost their job, but so what? They didn't care. So, and you didn't lose your job, but you lost a person. Who cares? You're alive. That's Oishir HaChaim. You're on vacation. So you lost your vacation. You're alive. But again, put it into context. The exact same thing if you lose your camera in a department store and you run back and you don't have it, it ruins your day. And you become depressed. Until if you have this attitude of Oishir HaChaim, of appreciation, of the fortune of being alive and healthy, you don't feel that. And I saw for myself that this kind of a, of a event depresses you, puts a damper on your vacation. But the second time that it happens, and it was only a fraction of the first, oh, how overjoyed you are, whereas isolated by itself on vacation, you'd feel terrible about it. People get a telephone call from a child, I was in an accident in the car. And how are you? How's everybody? Is anybody hurt? No. Oh, and you feel that relief. You feel a sense of relief. I was only in the car. You feel relief. What are you really complaining about if you're an Odom Chai? It's, 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 it's a very powerful but difficult lesson. And maybe that's one of the lessons learn from this World Trade Center catastrophe. Can you imagine if it would have been nuclear? Can you imagine if it would have been where we'd have to evacuate New York? We'd have no homes, no economy, no jobs, no nothing, no fortune, everything. Our real estate would plunge. Whatever you own over here in the most expensive region of the United States, if it would be a nuclear wasteland, if it would have been instead of the World Trade Center, it would have been one of these power plants, one of these nuclear power plants, and it would dispute radioactivity over the area, it would take the next 20, 30 years to clean it up, and all your real estate would plunge and plummet, and you have nothing. No jobs in your back. I mean, how fortunate we are that we still have what we have. Oishu HaChaim. Ma'isoinen Odom Chai. Therefore, he says, if a person is truly able to understand this, then you'll always be happy that you're alive. You'll always be able to be happy. You won't feel it. You'd be genuinely happy. Genuinely, I have to tell you, I was, there was a mixed emotion. But the second time that it happened to me, when it was taken out of my bag, I genuinely was happy. I said, oh, wow, the rest is here. My checkbook, my uh, whatever else was I kept there. It's all there. I was just like so happy. It was only the, re- the, the, the cameras. Two cameras, actually. You could be genuinely happy then. I feel you surim gedoyim batsudim ki yisurei iyov. Even yisurei iyov ka'ayin ve'efes yichoshvu lumas hagosh so'ishu shaletzam achayim if you could truly appreciate the joy of being alive. 
חיינו מרדוב למלך הוא לשון יאסור ישראל יקור ולעמוד בסלוי נסדוני We say that whenever we say how Hashem has afflicted me but he didn't kill me I'm still alive יאסור ישראל יקור ולעמוד בסלוי נסדוני He's afflicted me and caused me to suffer but not death Therefore, I will not feel the pain and the affliction that I'm suffering right now. I have to tell you, I think one of the most remarkable characteristics of Dovin Abdelach that always comes through is this Oishar HaChai that Dovin Abdelach had. Again, you know, Dovra Melch always conjures up many, many images. But a person has to fully appreciate the greatness of a Dovra Melch. And, and I've mentioned this many, many times already. But it's appropriate here as well. Again, you have this passage where Dovra Melch says, Oh, I was afflicted, but at least I'm alive. So much so that he doesn't even feel the pain of the affliction. How do we know that he doesn't feel the pain of the affliction? I think, well, let's just, we don't have time to go through too many, so let's just take it. Mizmor l'dovid mevorcho b'pnei avsholom b'noi. The Gemara says, a song unto David as he was fleeing from his son Avsholom, who rebelled against him. The Gemara previously said that one of the worst things that a person can have is to have a rebellious child, or to have a bad child that is raised in your home. He makes all of life gain. When you have a difficult child, it, everything centers around that difficult child. And it makes everything in life a living hell. Tar Busra, says the Gemara, is worse than Gogumokom. Dovra Melch was faced with that. Avshalom wanted to kill his father. And Avshalom rebelled and deposed his father. And he's running away from his son, Avshalom. So he says the following, Mizmor until Mizmor l'dovid mevorch ne'av shalbano, Hashem morah putzara, etc., etc. So the Gemara comes, though, wasn't it? Mizmor l'dovid. Mizmor is a song of rejoicing. Kino l'dovid mevorile. It should have said a dirge. Kinnis, you're running away from your son who's rebelling against you. What are you so happy about that you're singing a song? You sing a dirge, a kino. But a mizmor is a song of joy that we find through the rest of Tillam. Mizmor is used, mizmor shirli of Ashabos, mizmor shir for Chanukah Sabais and Dovin. Right? At Chanukah Sabais, Shabbos, you have a mizmor. You're running away from your son, you're singing a mizmor. So the Gemara said, Dovin thought it over, he knew that it was coming. He knew that as a result of the sin of Basheva, he was going to suffer immensely. In fact, the Navi warned them on account of that sin the sword will be in your house there's going to be trouble from your own home and it's going to come up against you and rise against you and it will never depart the sword and he was thinking what's it going to be maybe it was going to be he's worse than Mamzer who has no mercy, mercy or no compassion to the effect God it's my son Afshol I mean, I'm not sure maybe he wasn't even correct but he assumed that Avshol would have mercy on him ultimately, and he said, it's Avshol. Oh, this, is, this is the one that's going to cause me the tragedy. It could have been much worse. 
So there Dov the Melch is running away and he's focusing on the silver lining of the cloud. And he's able to feel a sense of relief that it's only this. It's a tremendous madrega that a person could feel to sing a mizmor rather than a kidah. This is Dovra Melech throughout life. He suffered immensely. Dovra Melech always had difficulties. But through it all, he was able to smile. His last, his last capital of Tillam concludes with call on the Shabbat, hallelujah. Right, that's what we say. Every neshama should praise Hashem. And Chazal say, interpret the word neshama to mean neshima, breath. For every breath of life that we take, we have to be overjoyed. We have to feel the joy of being alive and being able to breathe. I'll call neshima and neshima to halal kar. For each breath, we should say, sing praise to Hashem. I'll call neshima. That's how he concludes till. That's Dovran Melech. Yasser Yisrani, I was afflicted with all kinds of sufferings. Yasser Yisrani called, but he allows me to live the greatest gift of all. But not only this is a calculated cheshbon, it's something that he feels. And therefore, if you feel it and you live it, life does become a joy. Ella. Truth is, and of course this is true physically and uh, psychologically and physiologically as well as spiritually, a person that doesn't have this quality will lose life itself. Of course, that's a spiritual thing. So, the fact is that a person that realizes this and appreciates this <coughs> is psychologically, physiologically healthier. And therefore, besides spiritually, this actually gives you a better grip on life. I'm sure more, most doctors will agree with this. So if the one lesson that we can learn from all of this is to wake up in the morning at the same modani, or the same modani with greater kavana, appreciation that, oh, my soul is restored. My soul is restored. That in itself would be a tremendous accomplishment if we could accomplish that from this year today. But a person that doesn't have this appreciation loses life not only as a spiritual punishment but as an inevitable outcome of the makeup of the way people are in terms of your 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 psychological well-being, your emotional well-being, and it physically affects you. So now he shows this as well. This is something which we've, on previous occasions, have done, but in the context of this, if you look on page, if you look on page one, one, 15, towards the bottom of the page. Vayove Yosef Yaakov Oviv 
Vayamidehu lefnei Paro, Vayavorach Yaakov as Paro. Yosef brings his father Yaakov to Paro when he finally comes down to Egypt. And Yaakov greets, greets Paro, blesses Paro. That's how you translate it. What it means that he blessed him, he greeted him. At which point, Vayomer Paro al Yaakov. Paro says to Yaakov, Kama yimei shnei chayecho. How old are you? Funny question to ask someone. Funny question. How old are you? Vayomer Yaakov al Paro, yimei shnei mgurai. I'm not as old as I look. Shloishim ma'ashona. I'm 130 years old. But ma'at v'ruayim hoyu yimei shnei chayai. But bitter and few are the days of the years of my life. Nor did it ever reach the amount of years of my ancestors, my forefathers. Yitzchok lived to 180. I'm only 130. And I may look old, but I'm nowhere near the age of my father Yitzchok, who was 180. And the reason for that, says Yaakov, is I look pretty bad because I had a pretty miserable life. It was few and bitter and wicked all, the, all these years. That's what Yaakov responds. So, Chazal say on this, he quotes over here, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to him, why are you volunteering your um, comments like that? First of all, Paro never asked him. <coughs> Paro asked him how old he was, and all of a sudden Yaakov is volunteering and piping up, yeah, and I had a really rough, difficult life. So Chazal say, Hashem said to him, what are you complaining about? You went through life, but you survived Esav, you survived Lovon, you even survived the tragedy of Dina, and now you survive the tragedy of Yosef. What is it that you're complaining about? And now you're offering up to Paro how, how difficult and bad your life is all about. As you live, Hashem says, for all of these words that you uttered to Paro, when he asked you merely a question how old you are and you have to offer all of these things, every word that you said is going to be another year lost from your life. And therefore, if you count it up, you have a total of 33 words and Yaakov lived to 147, 33 years less than his father Yitzhak. That's what he says. Eh, my years are few and bad and difficult, and I never reached the years of my, of my father in their sojourn in this world. They live longer, I am yeah, miserable. Yeah, you're complaining. You're complaining that your years never achieved the level of the years of your father. So be it. You complain 33 words. That's how many years you're going to lose. Yaakov dies at 147. Yitzhak died at 180. So he says like this. 
firstly, we have to understand that we can't criticize Yaakov for after going through the years that he went through of suffering, we would be the same, at least, if not worse. So we can't really criticize him, but the Torah does. But what Chazal is trying to tell us is not as a point of criticism necessarily against Yaakov, but to teach us this lesson that even if you're afflicted with Tzorus, Rabbis, Meroyus, that Yaakov Avinu had to suffer through most of his life, Tzoras Esav, Tzoras Lovon, Tzoras Dina, Tzoras Yosef, for 22 years of Yisurim, which is beyond what we could live with, if Hashem did for him what Hashem did for him, he have no right to say, And therefore there is some sort of a tvia against Yaakov that he should lose life. Fine. So that's number one. That we're not really criticizing Yaakov because to us he would be justified. What we are saying though is and he should still be able to come out with, with a certain sense of appreciation of life and happiness. However, it goes beyond that. Yes, Shemikam. Beyond that, the next paragraph. The 33 year, the 33 years that correspond to the 33 words starts from Vayomer Paro El Yaakov. Because if you want to count the 33 words, it's contained not only in Posik Tes, but in Posik Ches as well. So the eight words of Posik Ches, Vayomer Paro El Yaakov, Kamo Yimei Shnei Chayecha. Those eight words are part of the 33. It's not only from the Vayomer Yaakov. So Frederick Chaim Shmulevitz, how come, how come Yaakov is being punished for 33 years when it's really only 25 words that he said he said 25 words that he should be punished for so he should lose 25 years why is he losing the 8 words of Paro's question which was how old are you he shouldn't suffer for that that's not what his response was explains with Chaim Shmulevitz what does that have to do with Yaakov? The das kenim balei toisus. Pirush shekivin shiro paros Yaakov zokin mod. We said earlier it was a rather unusual question. He says, "How old are you?" The reason is because Yaakov looked incredibly old, so much so that it provoked Paro to ask the question. The reason why he looked old is because he was in that kind of state of depression and, and suffering and difficulty. So Paro sees Yaakov very old. And he asks him, how old are you? You look incredibly old. To which Yaakov answers, I'm not as old as I look. Ma'at heim shnoisai. I mean, 130 looks pretty old to us, but he says, I'm not as old as I look. It's really less, I'm less old than I look. Ma'at heim shnoisai. But, mitoich roish overwalai, because of all the travails that I suffered, that's why I prematurely aged. I look very old. Ramban says the same thing he says. Now we can understand why Paro's eight-worded question is also placed against Yaakov on the scale of loss. Why? 
if he wouldn't have felt his travails, he wouldn't have appeared as old, and Paro wouldn't have asked him the question. In other words, why do you feel so old? Not only why do you respond, your response is only because of the way you feel. You feel very old. You feel very bent over and burdened with the suffering. And therefore, when someone asks you, how come you look so old? You say, well, because this and this and this. The fact that he asked the question is also your fault. The fact that you look old is your fault. In other words, if you would have had the Oishar HaChayim that you should have had, he wouldn't have asked the question. You wouldn't have looked as old. You would have felt younger because you are as young as you feel you are. This is true, we know, emotionally. It's true psychologically. It's true physically. And it's true um, physiologically. It's, uh, it's psychosomatic, whatever you want to call it. But the fact is that if a person feels young and feels joy, he will actually look young and he will be young. As a result, although we're viewing it as a kind of a punishment on Yaakov, in a spiritual sense, it's true in a very real physical sense also. If a person feels bent over from his suffering, he's not going to live as long. If a person, on the other hand, feels the joy of life, he will live longer. So therefore, this principle of feeling the, the benefits and joys of life is life-inducing. It deserves life. Hashem rewards you with life. And the converse is true. If you don't appreciate life, you lose it as well. This is true spiritually in terms of reward and punishment, but it's also true physically, psychologically, psychosomatically, whatever the case may be, it's true. As a result, the greatest gift of life is life, and its appreciation deserves more of the gift. The greatest punishment that you give is loss of life. If you don't appreciate life, that's exactly what happens. And that's one of the lessons that we learned from Yaakov Avinu. What is it to complain about? If you feel and appreciate life, you will live happily and healthily and longer than otherwise. We could now then maybe appreciate Bilam died before his time, capital punishment. That's a greater punishment. The bottom line is that Eov lived, Eov survived his tragedies, Eov survived his suffering. That's a tremendous thing to live and to survive and to be able to bear it all. And therefore, Hachaim Shem Oishra Godel. He was given life at least. The Oynish of Bilam was capital punishment because it was taken from him the greatest treasure of all, which is life itself. Next column. What exactly, though, is this great value of life? How do we appreciate its value? How do we evaluate it? After all, as we said earlier, it's one thing when you talk about chorus that the Rambam talks about which is eternal life. The loss of eternal life is a, is a punishment that's, that's uh, immeasurable. Because life and eternity is immeasurable, and therefore the punishment of the, its loss is just immeasurable. 
But if we could measure life in this world by the years and the decades that we live, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years that the person could lose, so that's all the loss really is. Chazal tell us in Pirkei Ovis, that the pleasures of Olam Habo, even a whiff of it, is greater than the pleasures of life in this world. Unlike the Arabs that think that Olam Habo is merely an extension of this world. Here you're entitled to one virgin, there you're going to be entitled to 72. So 72 times greater than what you have over here. But we understand that it's different in kind, in nature. It's, it's just different existence. It's the existence of an ant versus a human being's existence. You know, the life of an ant with whatever pleasure an ant has can't be compared to a moment of life of a human being. The life of the Nishaban in the eternal world can't be compared to the pleasures of this life. And it brings down Chazal say that the word Koiras Ruach is not even the actual merely the whiff of it whatever we'll skip that part however however great the pleasures of Olam Haba is vis-a-vis Olam Haza but Chazal the same mission and Pirkei Ovis say the reverse yet the opportunity of performing mitzvahs in this world and learning Torah in this world is greater than all of life in Olam Haba which, to, to explain this maybe in a more uh, mathematical way, what Chazal are basically saying is that there are a number of conflicting infinities. In truth, all infinities are created equal. Because they're endless. But we know that they're not all equal. For example, the number of numbers is greater, twice as great, as the number of even numbers. Yet the number of even numbers is infinite. But the number of numbers, even and odd, is twice that amount. It's a kind of a greater infinity, if you will. What Chazal are saying is that you can't compare life in this world with its pleasures, because it's a finite world. You can't compare it to even a minute amount of Olam Haba, which is an infinite world. I mean, Olam Haba is an infinite world. We're talking about infinite values. And therefore, when we talk about pleasures in this world that are finite by their very nature, and you try to compare it to an infinity, you can't compare anything finite to anything infinite. Because as great as that finite thing is, it's inconsequential when you compare it to something that's infinite. An infinity compared to a finite thing is infinitely greater than the finite thing. You just can't compare it. So Olam Haza with its pleasures are finite by their very nature. And you're trying to compare it to infinity. You can't. And therefore Chazal expressed that by saying a breath of Olam Haba is much greater than all the pleasures in this world. That's their way of trying to conceptualize this to people that they should be able to relate to it. And that's what we said earlier. Capital punishment is viewed as the greatest punishment in this world, but it merely takes away decades of life. Whereas chorus is infinite life, you can't compare the two. One is infinitely greater than the other. That's, uh, but our way of being able to deal with it 
is the example, the metaphor that Chazal used by saying, take all the pleasures of this world, it doesn't compare to one width of the pleasures of the next world. Because the two existences are, are, are unequal. The life of an ant that would live a million years can't really compare to human life even for a moment. It's just a different quality of life. However, in the realm of infinities, you can have greater and lesser as well. And that's what Chazal is saying. The infinity that we call Olam Haba doesn't compare to the infinite value of Torah and Maisa Torah. Torah is a greater value. It's a greater infinity. What's the famous song? You guys know? Olam Haba is a good zach. Learn it turns a better zach. Olam Haba is a good thing. Learning Torah is a better thing. It's better, qualitatively. And therefore, if you want to compare infinities, ultimately the infinity that is Olam Haba doesn't compare to the infinity of Torah and mitzvahs. But here you come to a paradox. And that is that true Torah learning and mitzvah performance is only in this world, not in the next world. Therefore, the infinity of Torah, which is only in this world, and mitzvah, which is only in this world, is something which is just unreproducible in the next world. And therefore, Chazal say that And therefore, all of the pleasures of this world doesn't compare to the whiff of Olam Haba. On the other hand, all of Olam Haba doesn't compare to an hour of Torah in this world, life in this world, in other words, but properly lived life. is greater. Because we're dealing with infinities. So, once you have one that's greater than the other, the infinity of, of whole numbers vis-a-vis even numbers, even though both are infinities, but one is still much greater than the other. Because as the infinity goes on, I'm doubling that infinity. It's like two infinities. I don't know what's, you have a mathematical issue with this? What is that? Okay, we'll save it. Huh? Uh, you want it? Uh, maybe we'll save it. Okay. We'll save it for later. In any case, that's what Chazal are trying to convey. For that reason, we find who can be deemed greater and more worthy of reward in the next world more than Moshe Rabbeinu where Hashem said to Moshe your neshama goes under the kisei hakovod under the divine throne of glory yet Moshe Rabbeinu's response to it was I'd rather live I'd rather live in this world than have my neshama under the throne. Because in this world, the opportunities are so vast that the infinity of Torah and Mitzvah's opportunity in this world is much greater than the reward of the Olam Haba. One could approach and get near and become better and more perfect and come closer to Hashem more so in this world than having your neshama under the Kisei HaKovod in the next world. 
as he brings down here, the Malachim say, Mishos of Shoyim Zelze, Ayin Kod Kavodai. Whereas in this world, we say, Mole Kol Oretz Kavodai. You get closer to Hashem in this world. The Malachi Ashor is the divine, now the, the spiritual, the ministering angels say, Ayin Mukayim Kavodai. Where is his glory? In this world, we're allowed to say, Malay Kol Oretz Kavodai. The whole world is full of his glory. You can get closer here. Famous story of the Vilna Gain before his death. The Gain said before his death, "My how precious is life in this world." That you could purchase tzitzis for 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 a pittance. In all of Haba, you'll never be able to to buy tzitzis. So the Vilna Gaon before his death, and the Vilna Gaon lived a full life. He didn't waste a moment. He didn't waste a moment. And before his death, he felt, I, I'm leaving such a precious world. And he was telling the people around him, appreciate the preciousness of this world. In this world, for a few cents, you could purchase sitzes and wear it all day and do mitzvah sitzes all day. You don't have to do much for it. You spend a few, uh, a few dollars on it, it's nothing, it's a pittance. You spend a few moments in the morning putting it on, then you have to, all day long, you do the mitzvah tzitzis. And in the next world, what can you do? You can never wear tzitzis. It's interesting. Tzitzis that we find, the halacha, that you're not allowed to walk by in a cemetery with your tzitzis exposed because of the principle known as loyal rush, that you're mocking a poor person. It's like you, know, you have a poor person in front of you and you take a $50 bill and you use it to light up your cigar with it. Like the rush, you make fun. You're mocking a poor person. He doesn't have money to buy food, and you're making fun of him, or you're wasting food while he's starving. That's called loyal rush. It's a terribly cruel thing to do. It's cruel to walk by a cemetery, and all the dead people there see you walking around, and you're exposing your tits and saying, "Aha! Look at the mitzvahs that I'm doing, and look what you guys can't do anymore." That's what the Vilna Gaon said. In the next world. For no amount of money, for no amount of fortune, could you purchase a pair of tzitzis. And in this world, it costs you a few cents. You don't say you break Torah, Right, like Rush. Except by Talmud Chacham, certain things you're allowed to. You're not supposed to learn in the cemetery. It's all based on the principle of like Rush. Don't mock a person that can't. In other words, life is opportunity. Life is opportunity to do things. Life gives you infinite opportunity to produce the most infinitely valuable things. And therefore, that's why it's so precious. If you could appreciate that, you become overjoyed with what life gives you. And therefore, we can now finally appreciate this Eov Bilom Conundrum. To be alive, and the joy that a person should feel for being alive, Oila al Chay Olam Habo surpasses even Olam Habo. Because she Efshah de Chay Olam Hazel is Karbal of his brother Pachud Ma'is Toim Yosim Mishem Shemuchola Olam Habo. Because in this world, what you're able to produce, what you're able to accomplish, is much greater than you would ever be able to accomplish in Olam Habo. Much greater. As a result. Just to illustrate this point, 
was something that I remember reading from Rabbi Bleich, Rabbi Bleich from Mishim University, when he was talking about the, um, the idea of time of death, issues, brain dead, and pulling the plug. So he says, you know, of course he always defended the Torah position, which is that as long as you're halachically alive, you're not allowed to assist in the death of such a person. Certainly not directly. Possibly, perhaps, indirectly, but certainly not directly. So he said, but, you know, when a person's in a vegetative state like that, you're a paraplegic, I mean, you don't really feel what value does this life have. Of course, what's his name? Stephen Hawkins could teach you otherwise. They, what is he, a paraplegic? Quadriplegic. Right. Yet, amazingly, how much one human being could still accomplish. So, it's interesting that, you know, sports people and the like, after they burn out in their mid-twenties, they say, what's the point of being alive anymore? Because your life is valued by only how far you could hit a ball with a bat. If that's the whole value of your life, and you've reduced your life to such a small value, you don't have any life anymore. But Stephen Hawking shows that there's more to life than that. And life is infinitely precious. Even from a secular vantage point, you can be quadriplegic and paraplegic and still produce. We, of course, understand that even more so. He said over my my Bleich, that when his aunt, who was in a coma, was in the hospital, I think it was in Boston, and he decided to go visit his aunt, although she was in a coma on Shabbos. And he comes to Shabbos afternoon, and she's in this, like, coma state, and they say, your nephew's here, this and that. And somehow or other, just, like, prodded her for a moment out of her coma. She looks at him, and says to her, good Shabbos, and she says good Shabbos back to him. That she falls back into her coma. Next day she died. Maybe that day she died. Next day she died. So he says, you know, it struck him. Or Rabbi Kivager. Rabbi Kivager says, there's a mitzvah on Shabbos of Kiddush. Kiddush, we know what Kiddush is. You sanctify Shabbos. You take a case of wine, and you recite Kiddush over it. It's important to know that because when you're doing that, you're doing a mitzvah segment or isam. Shabbos is one of the most important mitzvahs in the Torah. Yet most of Shabbos is negative. When we talk about Shmir Shabbos, we mean passively observing Shabbos by not violating it with a malacha. So observance of Shabbos is passive. Observance of Shabbos is in the negative, not violating the negatives. Shabbos doesn't really contain positive elements that are on a derisive level, except one, Kiddush. Zohar is Yom HaShabbos L'Kansha, which is in the Aser Sadibros, so obviously it's an important mitzvah, it's one of the Ten Commandments, that is the only positive mitzvah regarding Shabbos. And that's performed with Kiddush. On a derisive level, you don't need a kais of wine, according to many. Rabbi Kivager says that if you see another Jew, and you say to them, Good Shabbos, you greet them by saying Good Shabbos, you fulfill the mitzvah the rice of Kiddush on Yom HaShabbos. As a result, it's advised when people go to Japan and these places where they have to keep two days, so they only keep the derises. In other words, because of the dateline issues, so you keep Shabbos and Sunday as Shabbos. So what, what many people do is that they will 
keep the derises of Shabbos on Sunday, but not the Durabonans. And therefore you can take a cab, you can handle money, uh, you could carry in most places. So you don't use a telephone, let's say, uh, but you can have a guy call for you on a telephone. And you can order a cab, you don't drive. You order a cab, you pay money, and you can go wherever you want. You're not in any derisive violations. So they'll observe Shabbos on a derisive level. One of the things, though, that they have to bear in mind is if they could find another Jew and say good Shabbos to them, they fulfill Kiddush. Because otherwise, you, know, you have one of the problem. Reciting Kiddush, it's a problem. Whatever. Why not you just make Kiddush? But this, this is one of the things that they propose. So, he says, take a look, my aunt, who knows what her neshama required for a tikkun? She's living in a vegetative state like a coma. But she comes out of it for one instant and she says good Shabbos. She's the kind of mitzvah of Zohar, Yom HaShabbos, Nakancho, one of the Aserah Sadimris. And with that, she's able to go into the next world with one more Kiddush to her credit. So is there a way of, of evaluating the value of that comatose life? How do we evaluate these things? How do we know what that one moment of life that she had to go through several weeks of being in a coma to be able to reach that point? Each moment is precious. It's not for us to define and to decide the value of life. If one understands life as having infinite value because of its infinite opportunity, and life is opportunity, then one could see that capital punishment, loss of life, is the greatest punishment. And therefore, Eo, with all of his suffering, let's face it, Eo, with all of his suffering, was responsible for one of the books of Tanakh. So if you're going to say, so who suffered more, Eo or Bilam? And on the surface, it would seem that Eo suffered more because he suffered a long period of pain and anguish and suffering, whereas Bilam was mercifully killed. And it's over and done with. But Eo survived the suffering. And he went through life with that. And ultimately, things came back to him and he no longer suffered. You know, it was a happily ever, happily ever after ending to the story. But even so, his suffering produced great heights of spirituality in himself and for posterity. The book of Eov for posterity is a tremendous contribution to the Tanakh. And Bilam, on the other hand, dies mercifully, quickly, but he's dead. The, the, the value of life, if a person evaluates that, then you're able to have a smile all the time. And if you have a smile all the time, you'll live longer. If you could always smile, you'll live much longer. And you'll live happier, certainly. You'll be more content, you'll be happier, you'll be more appreciative of life, and you'll be healthier, and you'll live longer. All of these benefits. And that all comes from appreciation of life and appreciation of its opportunity. Appreciating its opportunity. The Aish Rachayim. Maidani. Say Maidani in the morning. He has one more point. Let's, let's do the next thing. There's another interesting aspect of it. Again, this is basically, in a nutshell, the lesson. He says there's another great advantage to this world over the next world. Let's say 
after he was created, lived in Olam Haba, the highest level of existence that we could possibly even comprehend. In fact, we can't comprehend it. What Adam Arishan's life was like before he sinned, after his creation, in the world that even the angels looked up to him. The angels looked to Adam Arishan, wow, as a almost divine creature. And he's living in that kind of life. Yet Hashem says, Lotov heyos Adam Levado. He's lonely. It's not good to be lonely. Beganeid Nalkol, Chavudoysev, Vadanov, Adain Ho'odom Shom Levado. To live alone, to live a lonely life, a life that you can't share, is, is a loss. It's a terrible loss that a person should have to live a life all by himself. Let's try to just briefly sum up the next part of it because we don't have any time for this part so much. The lesson that he's saying is the following. I mean, they all say the famous joke, one of these like Yiddish jokes about this, uh, was it a reformed rabbi? And, well, nowadays I guess it would be a little different. He went golfing on Yom Kippur. And he got a hole in one. And he said, oh, wow, I got a hole in one. And like, that's great. And Baskol comes out and says, yeah, now who are you going to tell about it? Who are you going to tell it over to? One of the greatest pleasures of life is to share. It's to be able to share. But Tovayosovdomovado doesn't mean the way it's meant nowadays. Nowadays when we think of loneliness is Oh, I need someone to give me this and this and this. That's the way we think of companionship nowadays. Nowadays it's viewed from a very selfish perspective. I'm alone, I'm lonely. I need somebody else to provide me with what they're going to provide me with. That's not what, that's not what companionship is about. It's the ability to share. The ability to give to others. The word ahava, love, has at its root the word sharing. That's what Ava means, to share. Right? What's the root of the word Ava? Oh, you're Hebraist over here now. Michael maybe would know. What? What did you say? Have. Have is to give. Ava is to give. It's not to take, it's to give. HaKadosh Baruch who loves mankind and loves humanity to give, to share. The Mekubalim say why God created the world is because in one sense God was imperfect before creation. He had no one to share his goodness with. He was good, but there was no recipient for the goodness. He needed to create a world in order to be able to share the goodness and to bestow his goodness upon and therefore we needed the world to be a toive, you have to be a mative. You have to be able to do good unto others. One of the greatest pleasures and therefore joys in life is that when you have something good, to be able to share it with somebody else. To be able to give it to someone else. To be able to share it with others and to bestow it upon others. And the greater the good that you have, the greater the need 
to share it with others. We said before, life's great joy is the opportunity that life gives us. And therefore, as we said in the next world, like the Vilna Gain said, for no amount of money, you can't do any of the opportunities that you have in this world. You can't do any of it. But there's another thing that this world is different than the next world. And that is that in this world you could share and bestow it upon others. Your opportunities and your good things that you're able to amass, you could share with others. Whether it's tzedakah, which is one form of sharing, that's what tzedakah is. You share, you, you produce, you give to others. You're able to give from your wealth. And what are you going to do? You're going to hoard the wealth to yourself? Yesterday we were talking about it. In any case, what we're saying is that people, in order to enjoy life, feel the need to share. Whether it's to share their wealth, or to share their knowledge, or to share their lives. A human being is a social person. He's a social creature. And he has the need to have companionship. Because he wants to give, he wants to share. He quotes from the from the Medrash Rabbah in Shemos. Rishim Bechalavta was very poor. He didn't have money to even buy the need for Shabbos. And he was Zaycha, heir of Shabbos, to receive a very valuable jewel from heaven. So his wife tells him, His wife saw this gift from heaven as a way of diminishing the table that he's going to be on in Olam Haba. That in Olam Haba he's going to have less on account of whatever reward he received in this world from this precious gem. I don't want your table to be lacking in Olam Haba, whereas your Chaverim are going to have full tables. So Rishim Bechalafta told this over to Rebid Anasi, to Rebbe. And Rebbe said, Leich Amorla, go back, tell your wife, I guarantee it. I'll give from mine unto yours that he should have it full. Go back and tell her that I will personally guarantee that he won't be lacking and diminished. So she responded to him, Does one person see his colleague in Olam Haba? Doesn't each tzaddik really inhabit his own world in Olam Haba. She was right. He acceded to her demand and gave back the gem back to heaven, so to speak. However, that occurred. In any case, they conceded that she was right. That Olam Haba, in a certain sense, is a lonely world. Each person gets the reward the reward that that person deserves on his own merits. Unlike in this world where we all interact and we all intermingle and live together in a social setting and one person's benefits and wealth can in many ways affect someone else's and impact on other people, both for detriment as well as for benefit. And, and each person's circle of life overlaps with someone else's and therefore we're all interconnected and we all accrue either benefit or detriment from one another. In Olam Haba, each person gets the precise measure and the precise amount of whatever that person deserves for his Olam Haba. 
And therefore, each person enjoys his Olam Haba based on a very accurate accounting of what that person deserves all by himself. And therefore, in that sense, Olam Haba is levado. You're alone. Because if you're going to overlap with someone else, then you're either going to have a reduced or an increased Olam Haba based on the other person. And in the next world, each person is levado. Each person is rewarded precisely and according to the measure that they deserve in a very precise manner. Each person therefore inhabits his own world, so to speak. In this world it is not good to be levado. One of therefore the joys of life, one of the great fortunes that we have in life in all of Hazeh, is the fact that we don't live alone and apart, that we do share life, and a person isn't levado, and a person, as we said earlier, in the midst of being to feel someone else's pain, to feel someone else's suffering, and to feel someone else's joy. Each person is a partner to other people's joy and sorrow. Each person joins and takes part in the tsar and the simcha of his friends and colleagues. You enjoy life with others and you suffer life with others. You feel the pain of others, you feel the pleasure and the joy and the simcha of others as well. You're able to, to share with others, to give to others, to be able to project from yourself and from your wealth onto others. This is impossible in all of Habwa. He quotes it from the Kutchus Hasveikas in his Hagdoma, where he says that if a person would be able to, to have the, the pleasure and the enjoyment of going up to Shemayim and being able to see the array of the heavenly, of the spheres and the angels on high and the ministering angels and you'd understand it and contemplate it and come back with the great joy of its knowledge. You wouldn't be able to enjoy this attainment, this intellectual achievement and the spiritual achievement. You wouldn't be able to enjoy it until you come back and recount it and tell it over to your friends. The great vision that you saw. In other words, the greatest benefits that a person is able to achieve and accomplish are nothing until he's able to share it with others. Until he could at least talk it over, tell it over to others, share it with others, enjoy it with others. If you go up to Shemayim and you see the greatest spiritual wisdoms and you achieve the highest level of metaphysical and mystical knowledge and insight and wisdom. But if you can't share this with somebody else, you don't really enjoy it. You can't have pleasure from it. Continues this that this is really the way of all wise people, of all chachomim, any wise, intelligent, insightful person yearns and desires 
to share his knowledge, to share his experiences, to share his wisdom with others. A person desires and yearns greatly to make known, to share with others all those spiritual attainments and metaphysical knowledge and mystical wisdoms that he's able to achieve and understand on his own. People want to share their insights. Says Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz that this quality, this characteristic in the person is not a flaw. This is not something bad and revealing a, a detrimental flaw that's in mankind. For Kert, this is a mile in man, this is a mile in the person that he wants to share. This is really a virtue in an intelligent person that he wants to share things. A wise, insightful person would like to share these things. That this is, this is a fact of life, a reality. That a person doesn't have full pleasure in something until he's able to have others share with him and to have others join with him in the pleasure as well. And therefore this is a virtue in an intelligent person and an insightful person that he wants to share things. As we said earlier, the root of Avo is Hav. The Tachlis of Toiv is to be native. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's perfection is the ability to to share that perfection with others. And therefore mankind likewise, mankind likewise wants to share his knowledge and his attainments and his achievements with others. And full pleasure can only be derived when you're able to share your achievements with others. This is true spiritually, intellectually, as well as materially and physically as well. Man has that emotional need to share his success with others as well. You want to share the, your success. This is not a flaw in mankind, it's a virtue. And that's what Hashem says, Man by his very essence, by his very nature, does not want to be alone, doesn't want to be lonely. He wants to share, and he wants companionship, and he wants to share his joys and his successes with others as well. And the more that this is spiritualized, the more a person wants to share those spiritual joys and, and his spiritual wealth with others, his Torah knowledge. Torah is one of the few vehicles by which a person could surely share his great accomplishments and his great achievements and attainments with others. You're able to bring others in and a person wants to share his Torah knowledge and his learning with others. This is something which can only be done in Olam Hazeh, not in Olam Habor. In Olam Haba, everybody lives, in a certain sense at least, a lonely existence. Everyone in Olam Haba has his world, his chuppah, as Chazal referred to it. Each person has his own chuppah, his own world, his own universe. And again, I was not there to be able to, to uh, relate it or to uh, explain it. Maybe there is some interaction of some sort. But in this sense of the reward, people don't share their reward. Each person achieves his own virtues and his own rewards and is rewarded accordingly. He derives his pleasures and his benefits 
according to their level of accomplishment. And in that sense, the enjoyment of Olam Haba is a lonely enjoyment. Each person enjoys his own world, his own level that he achieves, and you don't share that with anybody else. That's what Chazal teach us from this story in the Medrash. Olam Haba is a lonely existence, not a shared existence. The joys of Olam Haba are not shared. They're each person unto himself, selfish in that sense. But in this world, the joys and the successes of each person and his levels of accomplishment and achievement can be shared and given to others. And that's part of the joys of life in this world, the ability to share your success with others. So we have these two things about Olam Hazeh that are greater than Olam Habah. One is that this is a world of opportunity, as we said before. It's a world of opportunity to achieve infinities that are greater than the infinities of Olam Haba. Olam Haba is infinite. But life in this world presents us with opportunities that we could achieve greater things than the infinity of Olam Haba. Because the opportunities for advancement in this world to come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, his karvus to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Torah, Mitzvah, Maisim, Tevim, and Shuva. That's something which is only in this world and can never be duplicated in the next world, as the Vilna Gaon tells us. That's a greater infinity than the infinity of Olam Haba. And that's what Olam Hazeh is. It's a world of opportunity, opportunity to achieve the greatest of infinite benefits. But Olam Hazeh also gives us the ability to share with others our joys and our successes. Again, Olam Haba doesn't have that. Therefore, life in Olam Hazeh is the greatest and most valuable and most precious gift of all. And if a person realizes that, and he realizes how great an opportunity life is, and how wonderful life is, what could a person complain about? If you have the gift of life, you have the most precious gift of all, because you have opportunity for the greatest of infinities. If a person could only appreciate that, then a person will always be happy. And nothing would ever come between him and this happiness. Because everything else is secondary to this great joy of being alive and being able to achieve the greatest of happiness and the most valuable of gifts, the great opportunities that life in Olam presents us with. This then is the message of Oishr HaChayim, the joy, the fortune of being alive. Moshe would rather have more life in this world than the Olam Haba that was destined for him.